Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas here. I have a diagnostic question I want to ask you. This is something that is relevant to all of us, all Christians, that is, what kind of church do you attend? Could you, would you describe the church that you attend? Obviously, that is of utmost importance because, well, the church is the second most significant place for sanctification, for transformation to happen. Obviously, outside of the family, which is the primary place for us to experience transformation. But the local church, well, it is a collective of families, and so the local church becomes priority when it comes to our modeling of Christ, our transformation in Christ, our union with Him, and then, of course, exporting Christ in the Great Commission. And so the question is, the church that you attend, what kind of church do you attend? Now, perhaps you are in between churches. Maybe uh, you are part of the de-church movement and you haven't been associated with a local church for a long time. Perhaps you are looking for a local church. And so this would be an applicable episode for you, and I trust that it will help you. If you want to find it on our website, lifeovercoffee.com, then all you have to do, go to lifeovercoffee.com and type in something like six models or what kind of church, and that will get you to this title, and you'll be able to read, watch, or listen what I'm sharing with you. The full title is, What Kind of Church Do You Attend? Here are six models. Each local church has a unique personality that reflects, honestly, it reflects its leadership. I mean, the people who are in charge, whether that is one person or a plurality of people, the personality of that church, well, it, it trickles down into the church body. And so in context, the word church that I'm talking about in in this episode, it refers to those who have been attending for a while or are actively participating in the environments and the equipping ministries that that leadership provides. And so I'm talking about the consistent people at the local church. Most of them, I would imagine, would be members. Uh, others will be consistent attendees of that local church. That is the local church. That is the personality. And because they have been there for a long period of time, for the most part, then they will reflect the leader's or the leadership's personality. Nominal Christians, inconsistent attendees, well, that's not the demographic that I have in view here. Again, those who are consistently participating in any local church they will reflect the leader's influence, and because of the leader's influence over that body of those consistent participants, then assessing the church, church's model for ministry is vital because no two churches are the same. No two leaders are the same. And so if you are looking for a church, I hope that what I work through here will help you to be able to distinguish between this church and that church. And so I want to examine six standard church models by looking at their upsides. And I also want to talk about their downsides because, again, no church is perfect because every church is made up of people like me. And so it's important that we... we 
be able to talk about the things that are wrong with us. And I want to do that, and I trust in a charitable way. And I also trust that this will really help you. Maybe you are actively participating in your local church, and as you listen or watch this, or as you read the article, you think, hey, here's some things that I want to address. Here's some things that I would love to talk to our leadership about. That would be fantastic. And of course, for those of you who are looking for a local church, maybe this would give you some direction. By the way, also, if you know someone who hasn't settled in to a local church, make a case. They need to be part of a local assembly. I like to say there are many things that you can do by yourself, but sanctification is not one of those things. Sanctification alone is incongruent with what Paul and the other writers of the New Testament have, have placed there for us, specifically as it talks about all the one another's. We cannot mature in Christ the way that we should if we are not part of a collective, and of course that is a, a local church. Perhaps recognizing that every church should not be the same is the best way to begin this discussion. I mean, it would be sad if all churches were identical because people, cultures, regions, trends, and even eras, they all differ. For those of you who traveled, you know that you, you cannot, should not replicate the church that you have here with a church in another country because we are just different. I was speaking with some folks recently about doing some work in India, and one of the things that they told me is the best way to do work in India is actually to equip the leaders in India because they're the ones who are most effective in evangelizing and doing the work of pastoring their people because they were born in that culture. They are immersed in that culture, and they know how how to communicate to that culture, and that culture is different than, say, Middle America culture. The devastating effect of multiculturalism is the belief that you can bring the world together as one collective and we will all get along. That is so sad. That is so unwise. That is actually foolish. That worldview in actuality, it defies the purpose of God confounding the languages in Genesis 11, as well as, well, the total depravity of humanity kicking off in Genesis 3.6. God does not want us to think and act as one because the truth is you and I cannot be trusted. We do not play well with each other, and bringing the world together as one collective well, you can't create and should not try to create heaven on earth. That is a errand for fools. By the way, that was one of the primary pitches of the iPhone in 2007. It will bring us closer together. Well, anyone with half a brain can, well, we know what that has done. We have become more fractured as more and more of us come together because it is not allowing for diversity, and it's not allowing us to actually actually to separate and to create the uniqueness that God has made us, the wise person recognizes the upside of diversity, that we are different, and segmenting ourselves off from certain others is actually wise. By the way, we do this all the time. If you have a family, there are certain people, if you're a parent, there are certain people that you do not want your children to associate with. 
I mean, even our dating apps have compatibility assessments because they know that people polarize. And so we're looking for people that are common to us. And again, that was the confounding of the languages in Genesis 11. God knew this, and you can't bring the world together when we're all totally depraved and expect us to play nice together. And so finding a good local church that meets a Christian's season of life, their unique family dynamics, and even their preferences, well, that can be challenging. Because our preferences are so broad, it would be impossible for one church or for all churches to be identical. It would be absolutely impossible to accommodate all the flavors the core membership desires. Now, there are some non-negotiables. It doesn't mean that everything, everything is up for grabs and you can have any kind of church that you want. No, there, there is a DNA that bleeds through all churches, even though all churches are different from each other. And the most essential in that DNA is the gospel. The gospel has to be the fabric that runs through all local churches if those churches are going to be biblical. The gospel is the main thing. And then sound theology. Sound theology is another vital need that no biblical church can survive without. And so the gospel is front and center, and sound theology has to flow through every local church. A church should continually grow in their theological precision. Now, perhaps you would also add Christ-emulating, non-lording shepherds to your list of non-negotiables. I would, too. And there's probably a few other things that you would say are non-negotiables also that the Bible would be very clear on. But most everything else is a, a preference. And so what I've done here is I've listed six of the more typical church styles. This is not an exhaustive list. And I will assume that, that all of them preach the gospel, the main thing. I will also assume that all of these churches believe in and practice theological precision. And so let's just make that two assumptions. And then we can also add, for the sake of this conversation, that... All of them are led by humble shepherds. And so the gospel is central. Theological precision is absolutely essential. And then, of course, you have humble shepherds. With that, uh, well, they are different. And these six models, some of them you may like, some of them you may, you may not like at all. But to one degree or another, they all have their place in the Christian landscape even acknowledging that you're probably going to prefer one over the other, depending on your walk with God, your season of life, and what you consider more preferential in the local church. And so I want to give you six church models. I would imagine, to some degree, you are familiar with all of them. And again, I want to talk about the upside, and, and then, of course, there's Always a downside because all of these local churches are made up of the same demographic in this sense as that we're all imperfect. All right, so the first one is the seeker church. The seeker church is a group that desires a relevant connection to its culture and proximate communities. 
Now, in order for the secret church to be a secret church and, and to have that relevant connection, it has to learn how to cater to the culture's palate. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I know many of you already have stories and have a perspective of how we have oversteered the car when it comes to a secret church, and I agree. Uh, that has happened, and there's no question about that. Some of the people that, that have uh, planted or are part of a secret church, what they do is they survey the culture to create what, what the culture likes within a church environment. Now, in one sense, there's some wisdom there because, again, we're all humans, and so there's similarity with all of us. It's like Christ. Christ looked like his culture. He was not different from his culture, and so trying to create something that is just so out of whack with the culture is just plain weird. And so these churches, when they do it right, they have drawing power if they do their homework. And many people enjoy this kind of church life. The upside is they are excellent on the front end, drawing people to the church to give them the gospel. Now the downside, for those of you who are already screaming at me, well, it's that they overemphasize relating to their culture, and it weakens their theological education, and it weakens their practical equipping of its members. I have taught in many of these churches throughout my career, and I see that over and over again, that they have good hearts, and they want to reach the people, and so they kind of mirror the culture, which is not a totally bad thing. But in so many of these cases, they are just absolutely weak in theology. And of course, if you're weak in theology, then you're not going to be able to practically apply theology because the, the practice of discipleship is the application of theology. And so you can apply it well if you don't know theology well. And so the people can be deficient in living out progressive sanctification to a great extent. If the seeker church endures, it will probably plateau quickly because the learning environments and the expectations for holiness have a, have a low ceiling. Because spiritual stagnation is common, the back door will become just as busy as the front door as folks who want to mature. Well, they will leave, and it creates a transient environment of unregenerate people, nominal Christians, novice Christians, and growing believers, they are left behind. But you'll see the front door and the back door are about the same size. Once it plateaus, these seeker-sensitive churches can blow up quickly, and they can have 500 or 5,000 people, but then it will plateau, and then the front door and the back door will be about the same because you can only grow so much in this type of environment. The second of the six models I want to present to you is the do-over model. Now, what I mean by that, this is one of the more popular kinds of churches, and it comprises of people who are burned out by a former, less desirable church experience. They have a past. They have a church past. This demographic seeks something different from their past, and they gravitate toward a refreshing, vibrant church culture. People from heretical church environments who actually start reading their Bibles and they recognize, I'm in a heretical church here. Well, they will come to this do-over. I'm calling it a do-over model. You'll also find people from legalistic cultures. They are perfect for this kind of church. Either they recognize the heresy, if it's a heretical church, or they grow weary of the restrictive legalism. 
A church like this will make much of grace, even to their detriment. I call this the grace mistake, and you'll hear them, grace, 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 and sometimes, and, and many times, uh, that can just be a, a code word that I can do anything that I want to do, and hence I call it the grace mistake. If you ask them why they attend their church, you'll, you'll hear repeated themes that sound something like this. I've never heard the Bible preached like this before. I do not feel judged when I walk through the doors of this church. This church is not about rule keeping. I never understood grace until I came here. And then the worship experience is alive and authentic. Nearly all of the good things they say, now these are good things, or can be good things, but nearly all of the good things that they say are framed in comparative language. What I mean is they align their new current church experience with their past experience. They love the do-over opportunity because their former church experience became a heavy yoke that accelerated joylessness, even tempting them to sin by grumbling, by judging, by cynicism, by even despair. Their new church moves the theological needle more toward soundness than cultural relevance or legalistic smothering. The people typically have more Bible knowledge, but they have difficulty letting go of their past, and that's why when they talk about why this church is so wonderful, they use comparative language. You can take the legalist out of legalism. You can take the fundamentalist out of fundamentalism. But it's hard to remove the characteristics of legalism or fundamentalism from the expat. They always talk, it's like, it's like they are tied to their past. They never move forward in that sense. And it, it can create a self-righteous and arrogant attitude as they continually use this comparative language comparing where they are now with where they were then. That is the do-over church. And then number three, you have the evangelistic church. Some churches do a fantastic job reaching the lost locally and globally. They want to go into the world with the gospel, and they do it in an exemplary way. As you leave their auditoriums, you may read a sign that says, You're now entering the mission field. Like the seeker, like the do-over churches, they focus more on the outward mission field than the inward mission field of each member's heart. The seeker relates to their pagan culture, but is weak and maturing within the church. The do-over group relates well to the burned-out religious people, but they also can be weak in personal discipleship. The evangelistic folks, they know how to win people to Christ, but are not so good with sanctification issues. In each of these three demos that I've mentioned thus far, you'll notice a reactionary attitude among them. The backward look to where they came from continues to manage them as they move on with their lives. That's the evangelistic church. Number four, the ministry, the ministry-minded church. These ministry-minded people are busy they are busy doing everything for their community and the world. Like ants scurrying around on an anthill, these Christians know how to get stuff done for Jesus. 
And I'm not talking about a social gospel here. I'm making a distinction. No, these Christians, they are missional Christians who are on a genuine quest for Christ. The leadership is adept at providing ministry opportunities for their people. All you need is a burden to start your unique ministry. If the church does not have a ministry that matches your burden, they will figure out how to plug you in and spin you up because they want the world to know about Jesus. And I say that as somewhat of a good thing because they have ministries that become portals to reach the world. However, the downside, well, it is similar to the previously mentioned sanctification problems with the other models. This group is too busy to slow down to do expert personal soul care. They're ministry-minded, great, even to the detriment of their marriages and their families. I have seen many women in horrible marriages that are leading ladies' Bible studies. I've, I've seen many men who are pastors who have terrible marriages or small group leaders because character does not rank high when they assess a person for ministry duties. You can be, un you can be an unkind spouse or you can be a, an ill-equipped parent and still lead a ministry because character just doesn't matter. A person's passion for ministry carries more weight than Christ-like character qualifications. And so that is the ministry model. And then number five of six, you have the educated model. This people group loves to study their Bibles. Praise God. And they have an endless supply of Bible studies for every demographic within the church. Knowledge is king. They are correct that being theologically sound is essential. It's the essential prerequisite in growing in sanctification. You cannot grow in sanctification if you do not have sound theology in front of the application that you're trying to make. Of course, the downside is that growing in sanctification requires more than Bible knowledge. So if you only have Bible knowledge and there is little or no to weak application, you're not going to mature. The educated church model, they don't match their penchant for the Bible within an equal, appropriate, practical application of the Bible. One of the more incongruent things with many Christians who know a lot about the Bible is they do not know how to walk a person or even themselves through critical sanctification issues. This has been a recurring theme in my life. It is probably the driving theme as to why we have this ministry here at Life Over Coffee. It was the reason, I mean, this was the reason I was in Bible college <laughs> Working on my first uh, degree, undergrad degree, I have a degree in uh, theology. That was the one that I was working on. Later, I got a degree in Christian education. And even with those two degrees, I did not know how to disciple myself out of a paper bag. And so I'm not saying that critically as though I am not in that demographic, for I was. And that is why this ministry exists. We assume theology in people's lives, and so we focus on the application of theology. Both of those are absolutely essential. And I have counseled some of the smartest Bible theologian 
theologically astute people that you would ever want to meet. They know way more about the Bible than I do. But the gulf between what they know and how to practically apply it to their life or any struggling person's life, it can really be broad. And so like the previous models that I mentioned, the five or the four other models that I mentioned, eventually you're tempted to leave this kind of environment because you want practical help that transforms lives, especially your life and the lives of those whom you love. Building taller silos to store more Bible knowledge is not the answer when your life, your marriage, your family, or your community is spiraling into ever-increasing dysfunction. I've titled this, What Kind of Church Do You Attend? Here are six models. And I've walked through those models. The first one was the seeker model, a slight upside, big downside. Then I talked about the do-over model, those who, who come from bad past church experiences. And then number three, I talked about the evangelistic model, praise God for people who want to reach others for Christ. And then number four, the ministry-minded model. The downside is character is not that important as long as we can plug people in to do ministry. Everybody can play. Everybody has a spot. And then number five was the educated model. These are tall Bible silos full of theological information, but they can be weak on application. And then the sixth model here, I'm going to call it the disciplers model, a disciple-making model. Disciple-makers are probably the rarest group of all because it's the most challenging aspect of our religion to accomplish. Creating contexts where people are honest, transparent, intrusive, humble, compassionate, courageous, and able to practicalize the gospel in personal problems and situational challenges can be a bridge too far for many churches, many church leaders, many church people. To take a couple or to take a, a single person or to take a teen through relational difficulty in the context of a local church is the exception rather than the rule. Our inability to replicate Christ in people's lives is perplexing in light of Peter and Paul's expectations for God's Word, as we see in the New Testament. Just two places, for example, in 2 Peter 1, you know it. We have all we need for life and godliness. That's Peter. 2 Peter 2 uh, or 2 Peter 3, 16, this is Paul. The Word of God is profitable for, and he gives us four things there, teaching, re rebuking, correcting, and, and training. The Lord's intent for sanctification is to happen in a community of competent and compassionate, courageous, Christ-like disciple-makers. The downside of this group, the disciple-making group, is that it may lead to ingrown stagnation if it does not do some of the things that the other groups are actually doing. But this model does best represent a New Testament church because, one, it preaches sound theology. That is the essential prerequisite. And it creates equipping context to apply that sound theology within the milieus of the local church. It is theology applied. And if this local church is more than a disciple-making church, meaning that it's also reaching the community and trying to reach the world with the gospel, then it's probably as, as good as it gets.
Now, which one of those six do you like? If you are like me, I suspect you enjoy a, a combination of, of all of the models. I mean, you do want to be biblically relevant. Jesus, Jesus was. You want to be evangelistic, missional. You want to be ministry-minded, for sure. You, you also want to grow in your faith. These are all good things for a local body. And so the question is, how do you decide? So you say, well, I have several brushstrokes on the canvas here, and I, I have a pretty good idea of the kind of church that I would like to be part of. Then how do I decide? Well, if the gospel is correct, which it has to be, and theology is precise, then it must be, and they are applying it practically and are evangelistically reaching the world, then what kind of imperfect church will you call home? By the way, we... We have to factor imperfection into our church experience. That's essential. If you do not, you'll be disappointed. All churches are full of imperfect people. The whole is a collection of its parts. If the parts are unclean, which they are, then the whole will experience traces of uncleanness, which it does, to expect otherwise will tempt the Christian to leave their church for the wrong reasons. And so say this aloud, there is no perfect church. If the gospel is sound, if the theological depth is deepening, if the imperfections are not too glaring, if transformation is happening, then here's one final thing for you to consider. One of the most important questions that you can ask regarding the church that you want to attend is, who do I want to shepherd me? Who, who do I want to shepherd me? L listen what the Hebrew writer said in 1317. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are watching your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be useless to you. The church that you attend will reflect its lead pastor or pastors in many ways. His life, his vision will be the primary imprint unfolding into a combination of the models that Presented. Perhaps there were things that you liked about all six models. Well, whoever the lead pastor is, then his life and his vision is going to be an imprint over however that looks in that local church. And so the question for you is whether or not you can follow him as he follows Christ while accepting the vision he believes is suitable for this local assembly. His vision will directly and practically impact your life and those under your responsibility. Perhaps thinking through the shepherding question, that's the question that I'm, that's the final question that I'm asking you. Not just which of the six models you like or which of the combination of those six models that you like, but ultimately you have to ask the shepherding question because I am commanded to submit to the leaders of our local church. And so, therefore, if I am going to submit to you, this, this is very similar to, 
to Eve or to any woman who's going to marry a man. If I am to submit to you, which I am called to do, then, well, I want to know what kind of person you are. And, and every uh, lady should be asking that question and, and, and really collecting all the da data that she can collect. Because that's a long-term covenant that you're making, and we're making a covenant with the local church. And so the shepherding question becomes vital once you realize uh, what combination of models that you want. Who do you want to follow? Who do you want to affect you, the imprint upon you? Who do you want to influence your spouse, your children, your friends? Let's say that you are married. And your spouse has a relational, situational difficulty, whatever that may be, fill in the blank. Can your shepherd shepherd you? Can your shepherd shepherd your spouse? Does your shepherd know how to provide care for you and your spouse? Suppose you have a teenager who is struggling with sin. Can your youth leader or pastor, whatever their title is, can the person over youth walk you? and your child through this challenging season in your life. Who do you call when you need practical shepherd's care? The church should reach the lost. Create ministry portals so more, more people can hear the good news about Jesus. And the church must be a sanctification hospital for its members. If the church cannot care for its wounded, which all of us are to some degree, then those who march under that church's banner are in the wrong place. It would be like a company saying, we can do such and such for you. And after you buy their product, you realize they cannot fulfill their promise. And so you send it back to Amazon and say, I want my money back. Oh, I want to replace it with another product. Your salvation is much more than being born again. Regeneration is the beginning of your journey with God and others. If your best efforts get people in the door, but we cannot provide practical sanctification care, then we have to reevaluate our priorities, and we have to reevaluate our local church. The title of this is, What Kind of Church Do You Attend? Here are six models. I laid them out for you. Let me wrap up by asking a few questions. Straightforward, what kind of church do you attend? Perhaps as a blend of the models above, how would you describe your local church? Would you have a conversation with someone about this? Number two, why do you attend your church? What compels you to be part of this local body of believers? Another conversation worth having with, with a friend. Number three, how does your church need to change? As you think charitably about your church, the operative word here is charitably. Don't let your pastors pastor you with groaning, but with joy. But it doesn't mean that you have to agree. Lockstepping with someone is dangerous because you're lockstepping with an imperfect person. You can disagree, but we disagree with charitableness in our hearts and upon our lips. How does your church need to change as you think charitably about your church? And then number four, what unique gifts do you have that make your church more effective? And how are you employing those gifts? What I'm asking here, are you part of the solution that your church needs? You can find this at lifeovercoffee.com. What kind of church do you attend? Here are six models. You can find this article. It's also part of a downloadable digital book that is free to you in our store. It's called 
the local church. And you can get that book, and again, it's free, and share it with 1,000 of your closest friends. Let them know about it. Go to our store at lifeovercoffee.com, and there is a, it's like 30,000 words is free to you. Take advantage of it. Call the, the local church. I just shared with you one chapter. What kind of church do you attend? Here are six models. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.